good to be back, and I hope you had a good afternoon in the Lord, and He is so good, He's wonderful, and we can trust Him, and when we trusted Him by grace through faith, you know, the Bible really teaches that uh, grace is far more than just unmerited favor. I want you to look at this verse tonight. And let's just zero in on this particular text. Uh, Would you stand with me for the reading of his word? I want to read verse number 12 only. Let's take it slowly and just ask a few questions. Teaching us. Now we know what that means. But that word that, what's that in reference to? Well, in verse 11, we had the word for. And now we have this word that. And it takes us back to what we've previously read and studied. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit takes for granted that you've studied and read the previous verses? I want to show you something in this verse that to me is remarkable. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly. Let's just stop right there. Look at chapter 2, verse number 2. Let's go back to verse 2. That the aged man be... Verse 3. That the aged women likewise... Verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be. So that is telling us if this is not a reality, that's not a reality. And I ask you a question as a church Do your older men set a standard for the younger men? You ladies who are getting up in age, do you bring along those girls and ladies younger than you? He's saying there's body life in the church. And he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 6. Young men likewise exhort to be Oh, he doesn't stop there. He exhorts the servants to be obedient in verse 9 to their masters. So let's go back and read verse number 12. Teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. God, would you speak to us, and may we not only learn But God, may we leave here living in the reality of what we know to be true. God, I pray that you'll work in our hearts revival tonight and work in us deep repentance. God, that we might clear out that fallow ground and that God, we might not only be plowed up, but God, we would sow a crop that would bear fruit when this meeting's over. For your glory we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want to preach tonight on the aspect of grace teaching. I spoke this morning about grace reaching. We emphasize the availability of grace. Grace is available to all men. There's nobody that God discriminates against. God is willing for every person to repent and to trust Him. So grace is available. Now tonight, we're going to see that grace is able. Grace that's available is able to save, but the second aspect of salvation, grace is as much active in that second aspect as He was the first aspect. You say, well, what do you mean by that 
talk about first and second. Well, you do realize that being saved, there is three coordinating works of God in you in your salvation. There's the initial work of the new birth in justification. There's the continual work of grace in sanctification. And there's the ultimate work of God in glorification. He saved your spirit. He's saving your soul. And by the way, you've got to get a new body. God is in the saving business by grace. And so we're going to see tonight that this grace not only liberates, but this grace educates. I have two major points if you're following along with me and taking notes, and I would encourage you to do that when you come to church, and that is write something down because you need to not only want to apply what you hear, but you want to meditate on it when you go home. One of the things about preaching in Northern Ireland that I've always appreciated when I went there and preached is they sit around about 15 or 20 minutes after the service and just meditate on what they hear, what they've heard. Now we probably have already forgotten what we heard this morning. And I'm not going to give you a quiz, but I hope you walked away with something. My wife goes with me every week, and she has a stack of notebooks, and no matter if I preach the same sermon 25 times, she takes notes 25 times. And she can tell me what I preached, where I preached, and she's got it in detail. She's doing it again tonight. And so I want us to see two things tonight in this text. First of all, I'll talk to you about what I call the training aspect of grace. And then we're going to look at the transforming activity of grace. Grace has a training aspect, but the training is for transformation, not just information. God wants transformation in you and through you. God's doing a work of training. Now, look at this word teaching. You can literally break it down in the Greek, and it breaks down to these synonyms. It means to be schooled. Some of you never liked going to school. But since you've been saved, you are enjoying the school of God's grace. Schooling, educating, it's a word that means disciplining or discipling, and it also can be one of nurturing. So grace nurtures us, and he does that by training us by being our master teacher. Now, as I was studying this, I didn't read this uh, very much in any of the commentaries that I consulted. And so I'm careful if I say something that nobody else has really observed. So I'm going to make a few statements here and I want you to contemplate them. In John 14, 15, 16, and 17, in the upper room, did Jesus not say as he departed that the Holy Spirit would be the master teacher, that the Holy Spirit would be the counselor, comforter that would come and he would live in you, John 14, 17, and he said three times in those chapters that the Holy Spirit would take the things of mine and would reveal them to you. It's not the Holy Spirit the one who enlightens us. Ephesians 1.17, in our spirit, in the inner man. The Holy Spirit, I thought, was the teacher, but here in this text, he says that grace is the teacher. Now all this is, is Paul's coming at the truth that we need to be taught from a different angle. Because the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus, who is the grace of God. And so the grace of God is being magnified in us as the Holy Spirit, 
who is the master teacher, allows us to understand grace and enjoy Jesus. If you're not enjoying the Christian life, uh, you need to get over it. You, you just need to understand that God's not a killjoy. He wants you to have joy. God's not one who wants you to be uh, turned upside down. God wants to turn you right side up. God is in the educating, disciplining business. As we look at this, I have three sub-points under my point, the training aspect of grace. First of all, I'll say to you, if you look at the text, this is an internal work. Internal. God's always working from the inside out. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you can get information and be educated, and that's not what this text is talking about. This is talking about the internal work of God in the sense that it's direct internal learning. And by the way, when this learning is taking place, you got to take off your mask. But you got to be real in the sense of you being willing for God to do whatever needs to be done in teaching you the Christian life. It's not only internal. Secondly, it's personal. Teaching us. Underline us. I want to ask you a simple question. Do you believe that you're a three-room house or do you believe you're a two-room house? That's a pretty important question. I'm sure your pastor who went to Bible school and college and uh, in his training has realized that most preachers are divided and scholars concerning whether you are a three-room house or whether you are a two-room house. Some people do not discern that you're a three-room house, but a two. Let me explain to you. I'm not trying to give you a psychology lesson. I'm trying to teach you who you are. And if you don't know who you are, you can't really be and become who you became. According to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we are spirit, soul, and body. According to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is a sharp sword and is able to divide asunder between soul and spirit. Now where theologians get confused and really have a difficult time, it's sometimes heart, especially in the Old Testament, refers to soul, and sometimes heart refers to spirit. Now David talked about his spirit being renewed in revival in Psalm 51. And remember, the Bible says that we worship God not in soul, but in spirit. Now here's the amazing thing. The word spirit, pneuma, that's used in the epistles is the same word that is translated small s. When you see small s and it's spirit, what do you think that's in reference to in your King James Bible? Your human spirit. When you see capital S, what do you think that's in reference to? Holy Spirit. Well, you'd think it'd be two different Greek words, but it's the same. You say, what's that got to do with this text? It's got everything to do with this text. Unless God is working in your spirit, out through your soul, your soul is your mind, will, and emotions. So where's God got to teach you? Now most of you want to be taught in your mind, will, and emotions, and you think that's the most important place, and I call that your personality. Now all of us have one. There's no vanillas here tonight. We all are different flavors. Some of you who really put an emphasis on uh, this psychological approach, 
You'd say, well, this is a type A, this is a type B, this is a type C, this is a type D, and some of you are just off the charts. I mean, they, people who think that way. What I'm trying to communicate to you is this, that God begins in your spirit. And God wants you to have a broken and a contrite spirit. Watchman Nee, in his book, The Release of the Spirit. Charles Stanley says, as far as he's concerned, it's the greatest book he ever read. Watchman Nee says that grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die. God must crush us in our spirit. Our spirit was dead before we were born again. God quickened your dead spirit made you alive, Ephesians 2. And when God quickened your spirit, you became sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And what it means for you to be spirit-filled is for God to exchange your will with His, your mind with His, and your emotions with His. God is in the life-changing business. And so what we're being taught is personal. God's getting access to all three rooms. He's breaking your spirit that he can control your soul and live his life out through your body. Your body's basically neutral. But the Bible says in Romans 12, give God your body a living sacrifice. And the Bible says in Romans 6.13, yield the members of your body to the grace of God, under righteousness. You say, now wait a minute. Romans 6, 13 doesn't mention the grace of God. Well, I beg your pardon. I want you to go back to chapter 5 of Romans 5, and you'll find in verse 20 and 21, this really uh, question that people had. They misunderstood Paul's preaching. Paul said, where sin abound, grace much more abounds. And here's what they interpreted. Well, if sin abounds and grace much more abounds, I just sin all I want to sin and I'll abound in grace. And God said this through the Apostle Paul. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Shall we continue in grace that sin may abound? God forbid. And he's telling us that it's important that God control your body. Now, I feel like I've got some of you out here Maybe, you know, I can always tell when I'm preaching whether I'm hitting the target or not. And some of you, this is some thoughts you've never had. You've never really considered what is your makeup. Now, if you're operating from the soul out through your body, you're not spirit-filled. God designed you to function from your spirit, then your soul, and then your body. And so this educating process is God has not done away with your individuality nor your personality, but the way that we know that you're being taught is the teacher doesn't have to put you in time out. I like to play golf. I got a couple of putters in timeout. My wife said, why do you have so many putters? I said, well, if one of them's right, I'm going to stay with it. But if it doesn't do right, you say, well, that has to do with the putty. No, it has to do with the putter. has nothing to do with me. I'm just kidding. I'm trying to communicate to you that you are an individual. The third thing I want you to see here as the training aspect, is it's foundational. It's internal, it's personal, but it's foundational. Here's how I interpret the word that. If you know who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you. If I were to ask you, who are you in Christ? Are you saved and secure? 
Do you have a new nature? Are you seated in the heavenlies? Did you participate with Christ in death, burial, resurrection, and ascension? Do you know that you're adopted? Do you realize that in Christ you've been emerged into Him in heaven through spirit baptism? Not one person in the Old Testament, not one person in the Gospels was baptized by the Spirit of God into Christ like you are. So when you compare who you are to Abraham, David, Lot, or anyone, it's not apples for apples. You're part of the new covenant. When God saved you, He wrote His law on your heart. He put His life inside of you. You need to not only know who you are in Christ, do you know what you have in Christ? I, I listen very carefully to people. I really do. And I'm not trying to be judgmental or critical, but I can listen to people pray and I can listen to people talk and most of us, and this is my opinion, based on what I hear from a scriptural point of view, most of us have been influenced doctrinally, by Pentecostal doctrine that just started in 1904 that has integrated and been brought into our thinking in the average Baptist church. And most songs that have been written for the last 40 years have an emphasis upon the fact that everything that you need, you don't really have. I'll illustrate for you. When God gave you Jesus, did He give you all of Jesus? Or did He send Him in you on the installment plan? Or did He give you part and not the whole? Then why do you think you need more? Why don't you appropriate what you have? I'll go deeper in my illustration. How many of you believe that on a scale of 1 to 10, Jesus is perfect in His love? He's a 10. On a scale of 1 to 10, how long-suffering is He? How patient is he? Then why are you praying for patience and long-suffering when you have him? The problem is he doesn't have you. Why don't you appropriate what you already have? Why don't you find out who you are and what you have and remind yourself when you need patience, you have it and appropriate by telling yourself, by preaching to yourself, what you already have, and you won't get upset when somebody pulls out in front of you or somebody doesn't pay you what they owe you because you realize that Christ is your life. Now, if you don't believe that's taught in the Scriptures, let's just really dig into the rest of this verse. Notice, secondly with me, the transforming activity. I want to say two things. First of all, he tells us to leave the old life. Leave the old life. God is in the transforming business and He tells us to leave the old life. But how does He tell us to do it? Well, we cooperate with grace, the teacher, by denying ungodliness. That word denying is used 31 times in the New Testament. It means to disown. It carries the idea of what the pastor has been proclaiming here at the beginning of the service of a conscious, intentional 
purposeful decision to choose against myself. Jesus said it this way, take up your cross and deny yourself. So I'm opposed. What am I opposed to? Ungodliness. What is ungodliness? A lack of reverence and devotion to God. I'm also opposed to worldly lust. Now what is that? That's my desires. That are natural desires that I use unnaturally. In other words, men, it's normal, it's to be a, you're, it's normal if you're a man to be attracted to a woman. I've seen some of that going on here today with some young people. It's normal life. It's normal for, but it is unnatural for them to have sexual relationship before they're married. So God put in us a motivation toward doing what is normal and we can take a normal desire and it becomes a worldly lust. I had a conversation uh, with a man of God, a preacher this week and he's having problems uh, with uh, lust. Uh, He said, Ron, do you ever have that problem? I said, I'm a man. Do you understand that, that that's normal? Now, what is not normal is for my eyes to wander and my affections to waver and for me to become emotionally attached. Now, here's the frightening truth. And you have to ask yourself this question. Would you take natural desires and use them unnaturally if you knew you wouldn't get caught? Grace takes you much further than that. Grace deals with the motive and the intent. Would you if you could? And you knew you wouldn't get caught. Everything's naked before the Lord. The Bible really deals with this throughout Scripture. 2 Timothy 2.22 talks about youthful lust. Galatians 5.16 gives us a list of those things that are the flesh. We have these fleshly desires that's talked about in 1 Peter 2.11. In 1 John 2.16 talks about the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the pride of life. You must leave the old life. Now, I want to give an insightful word here. What is the only way for this to happen? You say, well, there's a lot of ways for that to happen. Willpower. Well, it won't work for so long. And I'm convinced most of what I hear preached and taught is people just say, I'm not going to do that. Well, if you read Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14 to the end of the chapter, Paul uses I 32 times, and Paul says that the things that I did not want to do, sometimes I did. And he talks about the things that I wanted to do, I could not find a way to do them. I'm convinced that that commitment Christianity will not work all the time. I'm persuaded that if you really want to deal with your flesh on a daily basis, there's only one provision God ever made. And that is to reckon yourself dead because you've been crucified with Christ, Romans 6, 6, and you're to write a check on the fact that you're dead, Romans 6, 11. And that is the only victory that you can attain and maintain in the Christian walk as you leave this old life. I'll say it this way. My old sinful nature has not improved 
If you take Jesus out of me, I can do anything I once did, even with him in me. If I grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, I can commit sins that I've never even committed before. Words, here's what I'm saying to this gentleman right here. If you take Jesus out of him, he's the same rotten sinner that he's ever been. Because Jesus is what makes the difference. You're not improving. You're not evolving. Now, there's two views on sanctification. In fact, there's a lot of views, but there's two basic views. And here's what most people embrace. Most people embrace the view that in spiritual maturity, that you're building up resistance to sin. Or that you're getting better. I don't have that view at all. Or it's MacArthur's view, this is John MacArthur, is the new is changing the old. If that's the case, then explain to me 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, where Paul made this statement. I'm asking the Lord to bring my body under subjection after I've run this race and I yield to my flesh and I become a castaway. He wrote that later in life. Here's what Paul was saying. At any time I can blow it and lose every reward that I've built up by him living his life through me when I don't reckon myself dead and go to the cross and appropriate Jesus every day. Now if Paul said he could blow it, you're not building up anything that you can't. And I don't care how many years you've been saved, and here's what we'll say about people to church. Oh, he's been a deacon for years. I've known him. I, I'm telling you what, he's the real deal. Well, he was till he got on the internet. I can tell you church after church that I go to that we have deacons and Sunday school teachers and leaders and pastors and staff people that are intricately involved because they give in to their flesh and the number one websites that are visited on the internet is not sermons, but pornography. Here's a pretty bold statement. If there's a man here that has not looked at naked pictures on, on, on whether TV or pornography or a magazine, you come up to me after the service. I've never met one. You say, now wait a minute, preacher, our past. Sexual sins do something to us, if, especially this worldly lust. Sexual sins do something to you according to 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 17 that no other sin does. They scar your body for life. Now, can, can God cleanse and forgive and, and, and God uh, wipe the slate clean? Yes. But that's why you need new software in your mind that God would renew your mind. Now, let me just look at the second thing. Live the new life. Leave the old life. Second point. Live the new life. Well, what does it say about it? Three things. First of all, inward control. I've already showed you this word sober. Live soberly. Now, that's not talking about having too many beers. What that's talking about, and most people would translate it self-control, which is the fruit of the Spirit. It's inward control, but I don't call it self-control because self can't control me. I think the Bible teaches spirit control. You think, well, sober, that's talking about, oh, what he's talking about is God controlling your body. 
Preachers better be speaking up about the use of alcohol. But more than that, those young people sitting back there, I'm telling you, don't you ever smoke a weed. Did you hear what I said? Don't you ever let anything control your body but God. Don't you give yourself to anything. And weed is like when we were growing up, drinking a beer. Things can control you. I preach in churches where people don't see anything with the toddy for the body. They think, well, there's nothing wrong with the Budweiser. There is, it'll make you a Bud Dumber. Let me tell you something. I spoke to a man, he said, well, it takes at least six beers for me to get drunk. He said, I only drink one or two. I said, well, if you drink two, you're third drunk. I said, if you drink one, you're a sixth drunk. Don't you let anything control your body but Jesus Christ. That's what he said. He's shaking us. He said, live the new life. There's somebody come on the inside. There's inward control. The second thing, righteously. There's what I would call outward commitment. Here's what righteously would be in your living. It's doing what is right at all times, at all costs, on all counts. It means practicing habitual righteousness in your home, in your work, in your business, even when you play golf, don't cheat. Amen? It's living righteously. You say, why is that? Well, I play with golfers. I played with one just to, I'm not going to say when, but, you know, he said to me, he said, I know I three-putted and I had a four, but I'm going to give myself a three. And, he's, and, I, he, and I said, well, that's cheating. He said, when you pay my green fee, you can tell me whether it's cheating or not. Well, it's the same principle in church. Inward control, outward commitment, but upward consecration. Notice you're to be godly. Now just listen carefully. Two views about being godly. Here they are. I'm going to give you both of them. One is that you are becoming Christ-like. Show me that in the Bible, in the New Testament. Let me quote some verses to you. 2 Corinthians 4.10 Always bearing about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus, not a life like Jesus. You say, well, the Bible says Jesus Christ is our example in 1 Peter. Example in suffering. Well, what was, if, you, if you're saying that the Bible teaches that we're to be Christ-like and He's our example, and I know what you're saying by that, but let me ask you a couple questions about that. Was Jesus Christ-like? John, 4, John 5, 29 and John 5, 30. Without the Father, he could do. The works that he spoke were not his words, but the works that he did was not his works, but in the upper room, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do. Abide in me. Did he say abide and be like me? An eye-opener for every one of us is when you realize the only person that can be like Jesus is Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm teaching that you're not to always do what's right because we've already seen that you are. And when he's living his life out through you, the explanation is that. But let me quote some people for you that I did not quote at the beginning of my sermon that I had in my notes. Matthew Henry. What God requires of us, He Himself works in us, or it is not done. John Owen, God works in us and with us 
not against us or without us. Adrian Rogers, holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. Real revival takes place. I'm on Twitter and I shared something on Twitter that I shared a year ago today. Would you like to hear it? New Testament revival is when I adjust to and abide in the life of Christ through repentance and faith. Well, that's a mouthful. But that's what New Testament revival is. I want to say it again. New Testament revival is when I adjust to That's the cross of death. Abide in. That's the spirit-filled life. In the life of Christ. Through repentance. That's my responsibility. And faith. I'm trusting Him. I'll close by not only talking to you about, I said I had two points, but I really have three. The training aspect the transforming activity. But I want you to look lastly at the last statement. That's a tough assignment. I could do pretty good if I didn't live where I live. I still live in this world. This is not my home. I don't fit in. This world cares less about holiness. This world hates God. This world is defiant. And everything in our culture is telling us the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Two things I want to just leave with you. Whatever that verse says, Jesus lived here on earth. And I'm here to tell you he's still living it now. Major Ian Thomas made a great impact on my life. Major Ian Thomas said, Christ is still here on earth by the Spirit. In the believer living the life that can only be explained as the life of Christ. See, you can't love your enemies, but he can. You can't forgive everyone. In fact, I want to whoop somebody every once in a while. But he can. You know, I can be unforgiving. I can be unkind. I can have thoughts I should not have. I can make decisions I should not make. But there's a teacher on the inside that convicts me and counsels me and chastises me and corrects me. And as long as I have a broken spirit, I'm pliable and moldable. And God begins to work the cross in me, teach me Truth that I can appropriate on a moment-by-moment basis and I can abide in Him and I preach to myself 24-7. It's not just the sermons you hear. It's the sermons that are engrafted inside of you. It's the Word that you've meditated upon that has become part of your disposition and your constitution and you can't get away from it. Because the same Bible that says Christ abides in me says the Word abides in me. The same Bible that says to be spirit-filled says to be filled with the Word. And so I have a tough assignment. I'm to be a straight stick in a crooked world. I'm to be around a place that stinks and smells good. Amen? And I'm not to allow this world to conform me to its mold. But I'm to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. That I might prove that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know what you need to do? If you're really saved, You need to thank grace for being the teacher. Because grace doesn't throw you out when you sin. Grace corrects you 
And his goodness brings you to repentance. And he's always picking you up when you get knocked down. But what you need to do is let him control all three rooms of your house. And that's not a once and for all. That's a day by day, moment by moment, abiding. You say, preacher, do you always abide? I don't. Andrew Murray said he never remembered more than five minutes out of fellowship with God. Spurgeon said he had no consciousness of any prolonged period in his life of being out of fellowship with God. I would like to meet those two men. Because I've not been that disciplined. That's why we're having this meeting. What is it that's tripping you up? What is it that's keeping you from running the race? Oh. You're satisfied where you are. This is a school. You'll never graduate in this life. He never stops teaching. He's always going to knock off and knock out of you everything that doesn't look like him. So I have one more question. Would you consider yourself a constant, continuous, conspicuous, Repentant person. If you ask my wife tonight, have I been a repentant man? You say repentance is not in that text. It's all in the text. You can't deny ungodliness without repenting. You can't deny worldly lust without repenting. You can't live soberly unless you know you haven't been. And you can't live righteously unless you know you haven't been. And you'll never be godly unless God's ruling and reigning in your heart. And that's not a once and for all decision. That's a day by day, moment by moment abiding and all God's people said let's stand together standing together with our heads bowed for just a moment you say preacher who needs to make a decision tonight listen carefully all of us All of us. I'm not saying you have to come forward. But I am saying if this sermon did not bother you in some aspect, some area, then you either didn't listen or God doesn't live in you. If we're going to have this meeting and we're serious about revival, right now is the time for us to do business 
with God. With our head bowed and our eyes closed, I'm going to ask this just to play softly, if she would. There's forgiveness where there's repentance. There's fullness where there's emptiness. Why not ask God to empty you right now of anything and everything that's not of Him? Any particular sin that you need to repent of. This altar's open if you'd like to come and bow. Or if you can't bow, you can come and stand. Remember, denying yourself is a conscious, intentional, volitional choice. Repentance is agreement with God about your sin. Confession is saying the same thing that God says about it. That's right. And when we repent, and we take that opportunity just to, to take in the whole life, no matter how big, how small the issues are we're repenting of, what, what we are doing is we are giving Christ more access to Amen. Us. And when we do that, it changes our life and allows us to reflect him more of Jesus. Amen. So I think the Lord is moving. I'm going to ask Ron to lead us in a prayer to Amen. speak over Amen.